If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we are going to begin looking at the end part of this chapter and the first verse of the next as we consider this morning how we are to exalt Jesus Christ in everything we do, namely, in our vocation. You see, we've been learning in the letter of Colossians that Jesus is the supreme and sufficient one. He is the one that God has sent to this world for the forgiveness of our sins, the one who rules over all, and he is the one who works in all those who trust in him. And Christ is working in us so that we might live lives for his honor and glory. He has saved us for his glory. And Christ is doing this so that we would live lives not lived by ourselves, but lived by Him in us, the hope of glory. This is what the Christian life is. The Christian life is not us trying harder to do better. The Christian life is Christ living in me, empowering me to live a life daily that magnifies His supreme and sufficient worth. It is Christ working in me so that as verse 17 says, whatever I do in word or deed, I do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul has been showing us over the last month that what that Christ-empowered, Christ-exalting life looks like. He has showed us what it looks like to exalt Christ in your marriage. That was in verses 18 through 19, first as a wife and then as a husband. Then he showed us what it looks like to exalt Christ in your family. That was in verses 20 through 21, first as a child and then as a parent. Well, beginning this morning, we're going to learn what it looks like to exalt Christ in your vocation and in your workplace. That's from the end part of chapter, or that's from chapter 3, verse 22, on into verse 1 of chapter 4. And we're going to look at this section of scripture from two perspectives. First, as someone under others, and second, as someone over others. And chances are, in your workplace, you probably operate in both of those capacities at different times. Sometimes you're operating as someone who is under others, and other times you're operating as someone who is over others. And the question we have to ask ourselves as believers of Jesus Christ is, how do I honor and magnify and exalt Jesus Christ in those positions, in those situations? Well, let's find out. Let's read Colossians chapter 3. Verse 18, on into chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Then verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, 
and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the Word of God whose statutes we incline our hearts to perform forever to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word that You have given us today. Father, we thank You for how it is the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. We thank You that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to instruct us on our days. We thank You, Father, that it is it is a glass through which we can behold the glory of Christ Himself. So Father, I pray that this morning Your Word would do its perfect work in our hearts and minds. I pray that Your Spirit would accompany the teaching of Your Word today so that the truths that You have decreed would be pushed into our minds and hearts so that they would never be removed. Father, I pray that You would plant Your Word deep within us for Your honor and for Your glory that we might walk in the way of Your commandments. Give us understanding today, we pray, according to Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we consider how to exalt Jesus Christ in everything we do, it shouldn't surprise us this morning that one of the areas of our lives that Paul addresses is the area of work. Is the area of work. Work is an important part of our world and our reality. The God who created our world and who created us works. And He has created us to work also. Back in uh, when God first created Adam and Eve, even before sin and the fall, gave God gave humanity work and specific tasks to do. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To sleep on a hammock all day? No. It says to work it and to keep it. Work is not bad. Being given specific tasks and goals and working hard to accomplish them is part and parcel of what it means to be made in the image of God. Our God does work. We, made in His image, are to work also. In fact, not only is work found at the very heart of our creation as humanity, it's also found at the very heart of our consummation. In Revelation 21 and 22, you realize that we in Christ are, this might be news for for some of you, not headed to a destiny of playing harps repeatedly in the clouds for all eternity. We're headed to a new heaven and a new earth in a new universe in which we discover from those chapters there will be government, agriculture, art, music, science, infrastructure, basically civilization 2.0, but this time holy, righteous, and pure. See, eternity is not going to be boring. Eternity is going to be full of activity. It's going to be full of ambition and interest. It's going to be full of work. And so at the very center of our destiny and our design as humans, we find work. Made in the image of God, we as humans are uniquely made to work and to do much for the glory of God. So work is good. Work is good. We are called to it and we find our calling in it. The only problem is, in a fallen world, work is also painful and often prone to vanity. 
That is what God said in Genesis 3.17 and following. After Adam sinned, God said, Cursed is the ground. That was the ground that man was supposed to work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So work is good, but in a fallen and twisted world, work has become fallen and twisted in many ways as well. And that is exactly what we will discover here in Colossians chapter 3, as Paul addresses believers who find themselves in one of the harshest, dehumanizing, and difficult work environments ever imaginable, slavery. And let's not kid ourselves, that is exactly the cultural context into which Paul is speaking here. When he addresses bondservants, that word is doulos in the Greek. It means someone who is bound to serving another person completely. And when he addresses masters later, that word is kurios. It means someone who owns property and oversees it with power. So Paul here in Colossians chapter 3 is speaking into a culture that thought that some people could own other people with almost absolute power. And Paul is helping those Colossian believers who upon salvation through faith in Jesus Christ suddenly find themselves navigating a twisted culture like that for the glory of God. And before we look at Scripture's instructions and apply them to our current lives, we need to get one thing out of the way right now. And I'm going to feel a little weird this morning because so often I teach through passages of Scripture. But sometimes to understand a passage correctly, you need to teach on what the Bible says on a subject in a holistic manner. And that's what we're going to do this morning. First thing we need to get out of the way from this passage right away is that slavery is wrong. Slavery is wrong. Slavery, the idea that one human being can have the right to own and control with nearly absolute power another human being is wrong. Some people assume that because Scripture speaks into this type of culture, that that means that Scripture must then also endorse or support this type of culture. That is not true. The Bible consistently and carefully teaches that slavery is wrong that it is deviant, and that it is sinful, and it is not a part of God's design or destiny for humanity. Slavery, the idea that one human being can have the right to own or control with nearly absolute power, another human being is wrong for three biblical reasons. First, it is wrong because of creation itself. When God created man in his own image, Genesis 1.27 says, He, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. When God created man, he created them all equal. With equal value, equal authority, and equal worth. And while as likeness bearers of the king, God did give to man dominion and power. That dominion, God specifically said, was over the other living creatures and not over other human beings. Every human being was created, is created equal and is given by their creator equal image bearing, equal value, and equal dominion. We see this from the very beginning of Scripture. So slavery, the idea that one human being can own another human being is wrong because of creation. 
Second, it is doubly wrong because of Christ. Paul has already said back in chapter 3, verse 11, that for those who have entered into a right relationship with God and are now rightly related to each other in Christ, there is no longer, he says, Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Those old earthly distinctions, even being a slave or being a free man, melt away next to the common identity that is found in Christ. That common identity Paul mentions in verse 12, it is being God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In Christ and in creation, we are all made equal in the idea that one human being can have the right to own and control with nearly absolute power. Another human being is directly antithetical to those basic truths. And that's why our very same author, Paul, wrote over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that those who unrepentantly live lives as enslavers are still unredeemed, unregenerated, and under God's condemnation. It's because engaging in slavery is antithetical to both creation and to Christ. And that is why when Paul sent this very letter back to Colossae in the hands of an escaped slave named Onesimus that we read about this morning, Paul wrote another letter alongside the book of Colossians directly to Onesimus's master Philemon, asking him to receive Onesimus, quote, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, because of creation and because of Christ, Put aside this idea of slavery and receive each other as equal brothers in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So slavery, the idea that one human being can have the right to own and control with nearly absolute power, another human being is wrong because of creation. We know it's wrong because of Christ. And finally, we know it's wrong because of scriptural commands. Contrary to what many people say today, the Bible condemns slavery as we think of it, not only because of creation in Christ, but also because of specific commands that are given throughout the pages of Scripture, and especially the Old Testament. Righteous commands that regulate forms of work and labor. For example, according to the Bible, a person must never be forced into servitude or labor, whether it be by kidnapping or by coercion. For example, Exodus 21, verse 16 says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, which, by the way, is how slavery occurs around the world and is also how American slavery began, with African tribes capturing other African tribes and selling them to Americans and Europeans who then would sell them to others. The Bible says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone who ever is found in possession of him shall be put to death. So both the one selling and the one buying the kidnapped slave was to be put to death according to Jewish law. So according to the Bible, a person must never be forced into servitude, whether it be by kidnapping or by coercion. Leviticus 25, 39-43 says this, If your brother becomes poor beside you, and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a surgeoner, and he shall serve with you only until the the year of Jubilee, which was every seven years. 
Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For the Lord says, they are my servants whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be bought as sold as slaves. You shall not rule over your brother ruthlessly, but you shall fear the Lord your God. So according to the Bible... A person must never be forced into servitude, whether it be by kidnapping or by coercion. It is wrong. It is a perversion of God's design for man and work. It is a sin. So according to Scripture, a person must never be forced into servitude or labor. Second, a person must never be beaten or mistreated while in servitude or labor. Exodus 21 verse 20 says this, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and that slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. In other words, it's the death penalty for that person who beat his worker. Why? Because they are equal in their image-bearing and equal in their worth. And again, six verses later, in Exodus 21, 26-27, says this, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let that slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In other words, the moment a person is beaten or mistreated while in any form of servitude or labor, God says they ought to be immediately set free from all from all responsibilities, giving them biblical grounds and authority to leave that situation. So according to Scripture, a person must never be forced into servitude or labor. A person must never be beaten or mistreated while in servitude or labor. And not only that, but Scripture says a person must never be threatened while in servitude or labor. Not even threatened. Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 9, which is the parallel to our passage here in Colossians. Paul says this, Masters, do the same. And he's referring to what he said earlier. In other words, do the will of God from a heart of goodwill to your bondservants and do not threaten them. So according to Scripture, a person must never be forced into servitude or labor. A person must never be beaten, mistreated, or even threatened while in servitude or labor. And next, a person must never be, this is interesting when I came across it, returned to servitude or labor. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15, listen to this. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. In other words, if an individual is beaten or mistreated while in servitude and they take advantage of that biblical grounds to leave and they run to you for help, you are not to return them, you are to help them. This is why so many Christians, by the way, in our history, both black and white, banded together in early America to create the Underground Railroad Movement to help slaves escape their unjust servitude. They did it because it was right. They did it because it was good. And they did it because it was according to the pages of Scripture. So according to Scripture, a person must never be forced into servitude or labor must never be beaten, mistreated, or threatened while in servitude or labor, must never be returned to servitude or labor. And finally, a person must be generously paid while in servitude or labor. Our very passage, Colossians 4, verse 1, will say later, Masters, give to your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And that simply backs up what is taught throughout the rest of Scripture. And if you are an employer this morning... I want you to listen to these words because these might apply to you. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says this. 
You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor or needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the surgeoners in your land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you before the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And this is what God said to those who held back just wages from their workers. Malachi 3 5 says this I will draw near to you in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the surgeoners, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the surgeoner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then one final passage, James 5 verse 4 Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, when you don't pay your workers, or, this is really what Scripture's saying, and perhaps might apply to us more, if you're not paying them generously enough so that no matter how hard they work, they always remain in a position of poverty and need, you have just become just like Cain and just like the Egyptian slavers. Those withheld wages which lie in your pockets and keep your workers in poverty, cry out against you. And the cries of your worker have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And if that's a situation for someone here this morning, you better be quaking in your boots because the last time biblical language like that was used, Cain was cursed and death came upon every Egyptian household. So the end conclusion is, When you look at Scripture, the only type of servitude and labor that the Bible actually allowed was servitude and work that was voluntary, paid, and temporary. As Exodus 21 verse 2 says, He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Just like Jacob who served Laban for seven years and then renegotiated terms to serve for another seven. According to the Bible and God's righteous standards, let's be clear, all work is to be voluntary, paid, and temporary. Everything else is condemned. So you say, okay, if all this is true, right, then how come, this is the question you have to ask yourself, and there's an important lesson here, how come so many pastors and churches supported the institution of slavery early in our country's history? Well, first you have to realize that many did not. Nearly all of the abolitionist organizations that fought for freedom in America were led by Christians. I mean, study William Lloyd Garrison. If you've never heard the name, look it up. He's the man. I mean, it is said of him, the source of Garrison's power was the Bible. From his earliest days, he read the Bible constantly and prayed constantly. It was with this fire that he started his conflagration. All these things grew up in Garrison's mind out of his Bible reading. Wendell Phillips, probably the most famous abolitionist of all, was a Christian also. My wife reminded me this week how on one occasion as Phillips was speaking to a hostile audience in Fenuel Hall in Boston, he said this, a distinguished fellow citizen is reported to have said in this hall that the, quote, abolitionists were insane enough to think that the duties of religion transcended the duties they owed to the Constitution, unquote. Yes, silly men that we are, we presume that the Bible outweighs that statute book. 
See, William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips fought fiercely over the consciences of their countrymen for the end of the slave trade, not despite what Scripture said, but because of what Scripture said. Finally, William Wilberforce, who was a British politician, he was a man greatly influenced by John Newton, the man who wrote the famous words and hymn of Amazing Grace. And so because of his biblical beliefs, Wilberforce waged a 20-year battle. He gave his life in British Parliament to fight against the slave trade, a battle that ended with it being outlawed in England in 1807. And in 1833, just three days before Wilberforce died, Parliament outlawed slavery in most of the British Empire. So let's be clear when we're talking about history. The abolitionist movement was led by Christians. So contrary to popular belief, we need to realize that many Christians and pastors did not approve nor support the institution of slavery early in our country's history. And they did so because of what the Bible taught. But ultimately... The reason why there were still so many pastors and churches in our nation's history who did support the institution of slavery, or at least were silent towards it, was for this reason. It's because those pastors and churches were caving to their culture rather than standing upon the clear teaching of God's Word. Caving to social pressure was a danger back then, and it was remains a danger to churches today. Think about it with me. What those pastors and churches were doing back then, pastors and churches are still doing today. Think about it. When it comes to the issue of homosexuality, abortion, gender roles in the church, origins, or the definition of justice, Are these issues in the American church today because the Scripture is unclear on any one of those issues? The answer is no. They are issues today in the American church because so-called ministers are caving to cultural and social pressure rather than standing on the clear authority of God's Word just like pastors did in the past. It happened in the past and it is happening today. It brought shame upon the name of Christ when it happened before. It brings shame upon the name of Christ today. And we as Christians need to resolve to learn from the mistakes of the past and to stand upon the steadfast pages of Scripture and not the shifting pressures of society. And when it comes to slavery, servitude, labor, and work, Scripture is clear. The only type of labor and work permitted in God's economy is voluntary, paid, temporary. Nevertheless, the reality is we live in a world that always has and always will reject those righteous standards of God when it comes to humanity and when it comes to work. Even when it comes to slavery, by the way. You see, again, this might be news for some of you, but slavery is not only a problem in the past. It's a problem in the present. According to the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline, Ohio ranks fourth in the nation for human trafficking cases. And to our shame, the United States leads all other nations in the consumption of this modern-day form of slavery. It's not that 
our kids are being captured and being molested out there. It's that kids out there are being brought to our shores and molested here. That's why slavery was not only a problem, it is a problem. And by the way, it's going to continue to be, and increasingly so, as the world continues to turn its back on God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look forward into the book of Revelation, in Revelation 18.13, what you find there is that the new city of Babylon, the epicenter of mankind's rebellion against God, will be known for the buying and selling of slaves and human lives, it says. See, slavery is not only a problem in the past, it is a problem in the present, and it will be a problem in the future among those who turn their back on God and reject the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I make this point? See, our current society judges. Our current society judges the past in arrogance, thinking that it has arrived at a level of moral superiority that will never do what those people did in the past all the while turning their backs on God and the moral principles of His Word. But what they don't realize is that it is because of those very biblical principles and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that we even have any moral consensus in our society that slavery is wrong at all. And when you kick the ladder out from under you, be prepared for a terrible fall. Because apart from the external, absolute, objective truth of God's Word, you have no basis by which to declare with any authority at all as something right or something wrong, even slavery itself. Well, you say slavery is wrong, but I say it's okay. Who's to say is right? And that's why when a society turns its back on God, it will fall right back into the very vices that it thought in its arrogance it had overcome. And that's what we're seeing in the United States and around the world today. We will fall right into the very vices that we think we've overcome. Child sacrifices among the Aztecs for a good harvest? National Geographic thinks that's barbaric. Infant sacrifices to Moloch for prosperity? Aren't we glad we've left that behind? Why? We would never be that barbaric as a culture. 62 million reported abortions worldwide. Nearly 80% simply because of elective choice. Mentioned as elective choice. Chattel slavery? Forced servitude? Why, we would never do anything like that. 40 million victims of human trafficking around the world with the United States as the number one consumer. This is the path a society takes when Christians abandon their gospel mission of exalting Jesus Christ above all and churches and ministers cease to stand upon the clear teaching of Scripture and instead cave to the pressures of their society. The problem is and always will be sin. The solution always and ever will be Christ. Christ. Christ alone. Above all. And that's why you see Paul handle this issue, and I'll talk about this more next week. Paul handles the issue of slavery the way he does in the book of Colossians. Because ultimately, the ultimate solution to this problem is Jesus Christ being exalted above all among those who are over others and among those who are under others. The gospel in all cases must 
be continually preached. That is our mission. That is our goal. Because when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they are born again in an instant. Instantly transformed, giving new affections, transferred into a new way of life. And that is where change happens. Real change happens. Lasting change happens. It is with the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. The gospel must be preached. Those we know of around the world must not have a political view preached to them or even a moral concept communicated to them. They must have the good news of Jesus Christ preached to them that they might be saved. They must be born again, for if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Just like the Colossians, we live in a fallen world where God's righteous standards are being ignored, where God's design for humanity and work has become fallen and twisted in many ways. So the issue is, how then do we as Christians live in a world that increasingly rejects the righteous standards of God when it comes to work? How do we navigate a twisted culture like this for the glory of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what Paul lays out for us here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 into chapter 4, verse 1. As he addresses how to exalt Christ in your vocation, both under others and over others in the workplace. And what we'll see in our study is that all these various commands that Paul gives here, made to both bondservants and to masters, can all be summarized by these two simple words from Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself, and do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And this sums up and sets us up for Paul's teaching here in Colossians to those who are under and over others in the workplace. Love your neighbor as you love yourself and do to others as you would have them do to you. Those two simple words from Christ, if heeded and obeyed by His people, would single-handedly destroy all forms of slavery and all forms of workplace abuses. Whether you are under or over others in the workplace, love your neighbor as yourself and do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the type of life that exalts Christ above all and does not bring shame upon His name. Well, that's my introduction. Beloved, let us love one another. And let us demonstrate that Christ-like love to our spouses, to our children and parents, to our co-workers and our workers and our employers. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We'll have to dive into the rest of the passage next week, but for now, this is the Word of God, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience till our one true Lord and Master returns for his own. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning...
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... I thank you for... the dignity undeserved that you have put upon each man, woman, and child is being made in your image. That they are persons of equal worth, value, and of equal dominion, whether they be the oldest among us or whether they are not even born. We thank you for the dignity you have given us in creation. And we thank you, Father, also for the dignity that is found in Christ. Though sin brings shame, Christ has exalted us with him into glory. We share in his glory and honor. We are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Father, help us to live like it. We recognize the shame that comes when we cave to societal pressure and do not stand upon your word, the biblical principles of who man is and how he is to behave in this world. Help us, Father, to not cave. Give us grace as stewards to be found faithful. Help us to exalt Jesus Christ above all, particularly as we think of it in our workplaces this week if we serve under others. Help us to be the best type of employers possible as we would want others to serve under us. And as we serve over others, help us to be just and fair to those under us as we would want someone else to be over us as well. Father, help us to love our neighbors as ourselves and so fulfill the law of Christ, and exalt Him above all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.